This is S. Alessandro Martinez, author of Helminth, and you are listening to the H.P. Lovecast podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of the HP Lovecast Presents Fragments. I'm Michelle Brittany, editor of James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with a special emphasis on the horror and spy genre. And I'm Nicholas Dyack, a pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, Industrial Music, Horror Studies, and I'm the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. Michelle and I also co-edited horror literature from Gothic to postmodern, also from McFarland. On today's episode, we will be discussing the science uh, fiction horror film Mimic, directed by Guillermo del Toro. This 1997 film stars Mira Sorvino, Jeremy Northam, Josh Brolin, Charles S. Dutton, Giancarlo Giannini, and F. Murray Abraham. It is also the Hollywood debut of Norman Reedus, who people may remember from The Walking Dead. Before we jump into our discussion, though, let's have Nick uh, provide us with a brief plot synopsis. New York. There is a deadly virus infecting children that has spread through cockroaches. CDC director Dr. Mann and entomologist Dr. Tyler genetically engineer a Judas cockroach that is able to kill all the contagion cockroaches. In the process of saving the city, they fall in love and get married. Three years later, life is back to being New York normal. Man and Tyler are trying to conceive a baby, but instead, their hubris at interfering with the laws of nature has conceived something dastardly. Giant mutant killer flying cockroaches that mimic human beings. Dun dun dun! Soon our heroes and a subway police officer Norton, NYPD officer Josh Brolin, and shoeshine immigrant Manny find themselves trapped in the sewers and subways in New York City, fighting off the killer cockroaches while trying to escape, but also stop the cockroaches from spreading. They do so by blowing up the abandoned subways. (laughs) It's accurate. It's an accurate plot. So, Michelle, what did you think of Mimic? I'm still kind of like trying to get over the plot synopsis that you just gave. (laughs) I saw this film a long time ago, maybe when it came out. I'm actually not sure the last time that I watched it, but I remember um, enjoying it. Um, And honestly, I still enjoyed it. Um, I thought that it, because it had been so long, it re-delivered some good scares uh, when watching it. Michelle does not like bugs, folks. So anytime a character will stick their hand into something like in Temple of Doom, Michelle will go, oh, no, no, stop, no, don't do it. Yeah, I don't like, even Roman Holiday, I think uh, one of the characters puts their hands into to, uh, like a fountain thing in a wall, and I'm just like, oh, cringe, cringe. Um, that said, after watching it, I did feel like there were some narrative issues um, that does kind of mar the the enjoyment um and i know we'll talk about that uh in our discussion 
That's that's what happens when you become film scholars, folks. Sometimes it's just hard to to turn off that pew and really enjoy a film without going ooh ah ah eh because Mim Mimic is one of those films. Um, I too saw this back in the '90s, and the the thing is, there's another movie that came out in the late '90s called Relic, and I liked that one as well. But I always conflated the two films: Mimic, Relic, Relic, Mimic. I think they have some overlap in themes. But yeah, I hadn't seen Mimic since 98, 99. Um, so we're revisiting it for this podcast because, you know, it's Guillermo del Toro. There's H.P. Lovecraft stuff there, which we'll get into. And upon second viewing, so many years later, it is. It is a fun film. It's You could tell it's early in del Toro's career. He's still trying to get his footing. That I think if he was to remake the film today, as, as people know, there was... Weinstein interference. Oh, we hate that guy. But it definitely if remade today would be a much superior film. But it there there's some <laughs> narrative issues for sure. But at the end of the day, it is as far as a it's a creature feature. It's a creature flick. It's definitely on the higher tier of creature feature films. Maybe we should start off real quick by you know, it's a Lovecraft podcast. Maybe we should talk about why we're talking about this movie on a Lovecraft podcast real quick. I think that's probably <laughs> a good idea. So we, we should also preface this by saying we were kind of excited to watch this film because about three years ago, four years ago, when we were living in SoCal, we actually went to the Gilmel del Toro exhibit at LACMA. And, and at folks, I don't know if that's still touring or not. There's a pandemic going on. Who knows? But... If that ever happens again, see that exhibit. I I I had went in there, you know, knowing knowing a good chunk of Guillermo del Toro. He's one of those directors that's on the to-do list of watching the entire catalog. You know, you sometimes you get those kicks. I'm going to watch all the Kubrick films out there. I'm going to watch all the Cronenberg films out there. And del Toro is definitely on that list. But, you know, we went in there, and there was so much awesome stuff. And a lot of Lovecraft stuff, because... Del Toro's a big Lovecraft fan, and he's done some Lovecraft stuff. I mean, Hellboy, I believe, uh, draws from Lovecraft, the original source material of BRPD. Is that what it's originally called, the comic series of Hellboy? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Um, and also, this is going to be kind of, uh, you know, kind of Kevin Bacon-ish here, but he also um, he did a he wrote a movie... Yeah, he did. He he wrote a co-wrote a movie that was directed by Troy Nixie, who is a comic book person. But Troy Nixie is also the person who did Vinegar Teeth, which is the comic book that combines Buddy Cop film and Color Out of Space, which we covered on a prior podcast. And and finally, you know, if you had to say, is this what if you're looking for some sort of Lovecraft element to be found in Mimic? It's not cosmic horror. It's not like the Nick Momotoss question of sense of awe, you know, is it awe-inspiring or anything? It is a creature feature, but, you know, there's there's parallels to, like, Pikmin's model here, you know, monsters living in the subway that come up. So, it's it's a stretch, we'll admit that, but just be, we're just going to say because Del Toro is pretty much ingrained with Lovecraft stuff, and whenever there's talk of, are they going to make a Mountains of Madness film? You know, it's Del Toro's name that always comes up, so... With that in mind, we're standing by your decision to cover Mimic on the HP Lovecast podcast. In addition to that, um, the story mm -hmm. that this film is inspired by is uh, written by Donald A. Wolheim. 
Uh, the short story was named Mimic, and it was written back in 1942. Um, it is, what's interesting about Donald is that he was not only a wider, writer of weird fiction, but he was also an influential editor. Um, he edited uh, sci-fi collections in the 1940s, including The Pocket Book of Science Fiction in 1943, and then later The World's Best Science Fiction. But he also was the editor at Avon Books. So he edited books like, you know, uh, the stories of H.P. Lovecraft and many others. He did go on to be an editor at Ace, um, as well as founding, and I didn't know this before, but he founded the Daw Books, which is the, yes, his uh, monogram. This is yet another kind of tie to Lovecraft, Lovecraftian, um, type of connections that are made through this podcast series. And I believe Lynn Carter actually wrote for Daw as well, and as we all know, Lynn Carter had his fair share of Lovecraft stuff mm -hmm. too. <clears throat> what I thought might be interesting is that um, even though um, Wolheim's uh, story was very different from what uh, the film was, I did want to share... A passage from the book. I thought it would be interesting. We do get a little sense, and I, I do believe that uh, Del Toro does a little bit of nod uh, to the, the short story. So this is from, from Mimic. At first we saw a man dressed in a somber, featureless black suit. He had a coat and skin-tight pants. His hair was short and curly brown. It stood straight up in its inch-long length. His eyes were open and staring. I noticed first that he had no eyebrows, only a curious dark line in the flesh over each eye. It was then that I realized that he had no nose, but no one had ever noticed that before. His skin was oddly molted. Where the nose should have been, there were dark shadowings that made the appearance of a nose if you only glanced at him like the work of a skillful artist in a painting. His mouth was as it should be, and slightly open, but he had no teeth. His head was perched upon a thin neck. The suit was not a suit. It was part of him. It was his body. What we thought was a coat was a huge black ring, wing sheath, like a beetle has. He had a thorax like an insect, only the wing sheath covered it and you couldn't notice it when he wore the cloak. The body bulged out below, tapering off into two long, thin hind legs. His arms came out from under the top of the coat. He had a tiny secondary pair of arms folded tightly across his chest. The lower thorax, the abdomen, was very long and insect-like. It was crumpled up now, like the wreck of an airplane fuselage. I recalled the appearance of a female wasp that had just laid eggs. Her thorax had that empty appearance. I think that's a pretty good segue to talk about what's both the positive and negative of this film. And that's the mimics. <laughs> <laughs> so... And that ties in what we're both saying, that this is also a film that suffers from a narrative issue. And I think the best way to sum it up is this feels like two movies cobbled together at the same time. 
that passage that you just read perfectly complements the first half of the film, which is this, in our opinion, my opinion, I think it's your opinion as well. You'll get for a second, I'm sorry. <laughs> we, we've done a lot of talking offline, folks. Um, is is the best half. You know, the, the mimics, they're walking around, they look very human-like. In fact, to me, they look like Jalo villains. They look like they were wearing, you know, dark trench coats, fedoras, very in the shadows. And But they're also, they're, they're stalking people around. They, they kill, like, a priest and drag him in the sewers. Um... When Mira Servino's in her office, one stalks her, breaks into her office, steals a bug, hides and flees. Um, and it's very menacing, very calculating. And it sounds like these critters have a bit of intelligence. They're very menacing. I think I've said that a couple times. It's just there's that stalking, intelligent aspect to them that in that first half of the film that it feels different. It, it has... Um, uh, it's just a, a different type of horror. Not quite a slow burn, but definitely there's something around the corner. And because these things, we we we, we know they're bugs slash humans. You know, bugs that look like humans, but the characters don't know that. So you know, in theory, anytime you turn a corner, there could be a bad guy waiting for you there, or it could be a person. We don't know. It has that. I want to say Invasion of the Body Snatchers kind of vibe, or John Carpenter's The Thing, where you can't trust other people because they're not people. They're aliens or monsters. And the first half of the film has that kind of feeling to it, and it pulls it off really well, especially in a multicultural city like New York City. Yeah, I would add that, <clears throat> and or maybe emphasize the fact that in the first half of the film, the bugs these characters really do seem to have that intelligence like the, it's calculated the the actions that they're taking are very calculated that's the sense that i get mm -hmm. through the first part of the film that like they have consciousness they have consciousness they're sentient beings yep. they they have an agenda mm -hmm. to complete um, that that was the sense that I got Espe in the first half of the film. Especially coupled with all the other scenes we're seeing. Like, we, we see the, the church that has all the smuggled uh, uh, folks underneath it. Um, uh, the, the, there's and, the, and the priest is not a good guy. So you're thinking, okay, well, initially you're thinking, okay, well, maybe the bug went after the priest yeah. because... Revenge or something. Exactly, yeah. Which is also kind of, a neat, usually in these types of films, you know, priests are the good guys. People go to priests, help me, Father. There's something evil coming along, and of course the priest dies. In this case, these priests, priest is a bad guy. And it kind of, I, I will give it credit for that. It turns the film kind of on, on its head. If you can't trust the priest, <laughs> sorry, Catholic schoolboys out there. Ooh, bad joke. But you get what I'm saying. In films, priests are usually the good guys the church is the sanctuary if you destroy that you know early in the film you kind of set the entire rest of the film of oh wow coupled with there's some child deaths in this film which we'll talk about because yes i love it when kids die in film i'm sorry people that are parents that um, just sounded really <laughs> not pc but but it's it to to qualify so often, the kids survive because, oh, well, you can't kill a, a child. And we, we even saw this in the Alien vs. Predator yeah. film, I believe. No, the second Alien vs. Predator yeah. film, they killed a kid. Dino Croc, they killed a kid. And if you watch an Italian film in the 80s, they, they love killing kids. But that to me, that always... to For this type of film, you know, it's kid killing, this, this priest killing, mm -hmm. uh, it makes the film 
more like, oh wow, he's really going there, what's next? And especially when you have your monster that could be anyone, it, I get the first half of this film is rock solid of, you don't know what's going to happen with anything, you can't trust anyone, you can't even trust the director that he's going to, he's going to zig when you're expecting a zag. But then, halfway, exactly the halfway point of the film, and this is when you called it, when Mira Servina is in the subway platform by herself and she encounters the mimic for the first time. The well, mo- not not the first time, but it's it's face to face. Yes. The the movie rapidly goes it, it did a 180. It did a bad 180. And it, it's not necessarily that the scene so at the scene you see the mimic and it throws off its facade and turns into a giant flying cockroach and chases her down. And yeah, the CGI doesn't look good. But I'm not faulting the film for that. That's just the 90s. No, and and honestly, I mean, if that's the only thing that was wrong, I, you know, it would be higher on my list of, you know, definitely see it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the impact of the full Monty, of the, of the bug, and what that impacts the rest of the story. Yeah, it, it basically tosses all of its buildup that it done to this point to turn into a generic hide somewhere from the monster flick instead of the mimics being intelligent cunning sentient all the care it turns into the movie trimmers which unfortunately is a slight against trimmers because trimmers is an amazing film but all the all the characters they're huddled into this abandoned subway car and the the mimics are just you know zerg rushing it stabbing through it they're acting like generic bugs they're they're acting like giant uh, you know, like the movie Skeeter, if you ever saw Skeeter, or to even go back further in time, the the Peter Graves classic, The Beginning of the End, with the giant cockroaches, not cockroaches, but giant grasshoppers that are just on postcards. It's not that bad, but at this point in the film, they're behaving just like giant insects, and it's they stop being menacing because they're intelligent and they can mimic people and all this. They're just... That, that, that was really the fascinating part about it. And, and, you know, I mean, I guess you could, you know, taking the a devil advocate's position to say that, well, the, the bugs reacted that way with the car because Officer Leonard was uh, injured and bleeding. But I still think that that it could have been done better instead of you know it's it's not like are the bugs they're evolving to a more natural uh, I guess it's it's state. Um, They're acting more than, animalistic. Oh, I mm-hmm. smell blood. Let me go blah 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 against the train car, which yeah. which is a sharp contrast to. You know, the stalking bug of Mira Sorvino that sneaks into the office, climbs up on the ceiling that's out of, you know, Sam Fisher's its way up there so it can't be seen, then straddles on down and jumps out. You know, it's, you know, you're at that point you're dealing with like burglary, intrudery. Hey, you've uh, invaded my personal space. I'm not safe. These things could look like anyone. To, to versus, oh, we're trapped in a, a train car and they're just rah, 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 outside. Quick, you know, here's our plan to run away from them. Rah, rah, rah. And we've seen that. We've seen that in Jurassic Park and Tremors. And that's just a lot of animals run amok films. Um, and, and to me, that's a second style of movie here. I, I feel like the whole 
underground, which is unfortunately half the movie. And this is an almost, we watched the director's cut, folks. This is almost a two-hour film. You got one hour of goodies in the, the anticlimactic, you know, last half. And it didn't have to be that way, especially when you have the perfect villain that could be any, I mean, again, that's mm-hmm. the same scares that we saw in The Thing and Invasion of the Body Snatchers and all those other films. And, and, you know, bringing that instead of Cold War era, you know, scared. Now you're in 90s uh, New York, uh, you know, pre-9-11, all that stuff. But you, you could have taken it in so many directions. And I, that's where the movie falters in its second act with the monsters. <laughs> well, and, you know, as you alluded to at the beginning of the podcast, um, there were issues with... Um, del toro he did not have full control um and he did not have final edit rights to the film so when he went back through and re-edited he did add six minutes but um i think there was a quote somewhere where del toro said that weinstein wanted it to be more scary and you know we've seen a few other del toro films that are definitely more slow burn um, Crimson you know, Peak is slow burn. Yeah, and I kind of feel like, well, if he'd had the full control that, that he should have had, you know, what would the film have actually been like? And, you know, would would that second, would that point have happened um, and lead to this kind of like, okay, we've seen this before in the second and the, the climactic uh, third act? I would hope so, but I have a feeling that that second act is here to stay, and I'm just going to attribute that to it's his second full-length film after Kronos. Mm-hmm. What, and get Kronos, I think it just got a Criterion release. I saw that film back in the 90s. All I remember is Ron Perlman in a clockwork cockroach. So Del Toro likes his bugs. <laughs> I, I guess I guess that's one of the positives about... I, I said one of the positives. Again, i got to go back. We did enjoy this film, folks. It just it had a big tonal shift which is it was kind of a make or break unfortunately it's not something you could sweep under the rug but but visually you know the movie was great to look at uh, it it has this i'm going to call it a 90s euro look to it that we kind of see also in the films of i always mispronounce his name Pierre Genot, Jean Pierre Genot, the guy did Amelie, but he did Delicatessen and City of Lost Children and Alien Resurrection. And I mean, those are, you know, French films and, you know, Del Toro's not French, but they, they both have these visual aspects to it. Like, especially like comparing like some of the subway scenes, the water treatment scenes from Mimic to like City of Lost Children. It's very gritty, kind of, kind of like Tim Burton's first Batman film where it's not, you know, techno Batman. It's kind of a gritty but kind of a almost steampunky but not quite. It's definitely um, straddling that, you know, the settings can almost be like Victorian in New York in some of those scenes. Like, we were watching... Or even, yeah, or gothic. Yeah. Um, I really got the sense of uh, I've seen uh, the television series Gotham and I definitely got the sense of you know it's it always rains in Gotham it's never a sunny day um because there's this you know there's an underline of you know evil and you know monsters and things like that that exists and so you're 
um, weather seems to uh, portray or convey that as a you know symbolism with regards to that. Well, um, I also well, well, hold on that your your rain comment's actually very astute because one in mimic it rains all the time in mimic. Yes, but you know it's another film. It, we. we talked about this when you were talking about the beginning sequence of all the the bugs the x-rays the diary pages and everything yeah I, yes seven have... seven is another film that it's mm -hmm. constantly raining it's a gritty mm -hmm. city and it's always raining but this your little trifecta of <laughs> rain in the grungy city right and i mean we even i think dark city is like that there's a lot of lot of films that you know convey as a secondary character that that underlying seediness and chaos that exists, um, you know, and is outwardly portrayed by, you know, the weather. It, it's almost, I want to say, the old noir films had, like, fog and shadows, while mm -hmm. the more neo-noir has more rain and boating architecture and and mimic has shades of that and again if it if it actually embraced like the neo-noir aspects you're, you're right to bring up dark city because again the the mimics look like the strangers which in turn mm -hmm. look like jalo villains the oh, movie yeah. is so close <laughs> it, it is it's very close um in um, an interview that del toro had back in 2013 he does mention that um he has, quote, a sort of fetish for insects. I think he, uh, maybe a, a big fetish. Uh, clockwork, monsters, dark places, and unborn things. And I really think that we get all of that in this, in this film. So we definitely see him building his repertoire of elements and tropes that we would see in films going forward. And again, as a sophomore, I... I we should say this again. Yeah, the second act is kind of in, eh, but as your second big film, he was basically handed. This is a Roger Corman style movie. He basically pulled a James Cameron with a Roger Corman. He took what should have been a generic monster film, and at least especially that first half, and he made it better and gave it, you know, a lot of his, you know, hallmarks, trademarks, visual flair that, you know, this. I mean, this movie did spawn two sequels given to kind of, you know, the generic run. This first movie very well could have had that fate. And it does stand out because it has a director that has a, a, a specific vision and a specific mm -hmm. style, and, which definitely takes these genre films and elevates them above the rest. Yeah, and I think for anybody that hasn't seen the film but you have an interest in Guillermo del Toro, this is this is a must-watch. <laughs> I think in order to understand his journey as a director, I think it's very important to watch this film because we get all of those things. Um, as we were talking offline before, the ephemera of the beginning, uh, the opening sequences you know, is very in keeping not only with what you see in other films, but to go back to the museum exhibit, um, the book is Guillermo del Toro at Home with Monsters. We had to pluck this book up yeah. after seeing this exhibit. Again, we walked out of that exhibit, jaw, was it even on the floor? It was dragging behind <laughs> us because, you know, this was like, for Michelle and I, this was goals. This was dreams. This was, you know, everything. <laughs> Yeah, and um, so in that book, it it conveys some of the exhibit, um, but it wasn't like being there. 
Del Toro's vision and attention to detail becomes very, very apparent in the in this uh, traveling exhibit, and you also see it in this film. Um, I do want to mention um, the use of children. We see going forward, like truly in this film, um, he is on the spectrum. He is a part of the story insofar as he is abducted. Um, he he plays the spoon so he's able to live because he's able to to mimic the mimics <laughs> mimic uh you know the bugs so you know he is where he's unable to communicate with his own um you know guardian manny um and others he is able to communicate you know he is an outcast the the um the bugs are an outcast and so they're kind of together I feel like that could have been played a little bit more. There's something there to have Chewie a bit more involved, integrated with the bugs, speaking to him with the spoons. And that's probably one of those edit things. I could see a Weinstein yeah. saying, get rid of that stuff. Get rid of Weinstein. But um, <laughs> it missed opportunity with the character because I was rooting for him. Yeah, and I think that, you know, um, Del Toro definitely changes lanes after this film with regards to you know, children being more central and part of the narrative action. But this, the role that this kid had is, you know, paves the way for bigger, like, bigger roles like we saw in Pan's Labyrinth, for instance. Yeah, definitely. But mm -hmm. I, I do have to say, though, there are two other kids. They get killed by the bugs. It's, you know, killed by shadows, but it is... It is sad because they're kids. They don't know any better. They're not nefarious kids. This isn't like Macaulay Culkin and the Good Son where he deserves it. You know, they just want to collect bugs and sell it to Mir Servino. It's their way in an urban environment yeah. to, to earn a little money. I mean, it's not like these kids could go in and deliver newspapers, you know, to, you know, an a suburban environment mm. they're they're doing what they can to Get make by. ends meet so but th this one of the kids he falls from something and he lands into a giant pit of barbed wire which is his doom uh that scene uh just being kind of stuck in just a, a bed of barbed wire totally made me think of suspiria because there's a scene in suspiria where a lady falls into a room full of barbed wire and just is slasherated wow <laughs> i actually don't remember that scene but, um i also want to say that um the reuse of uh actors mm -hmm. i know at least doug jones um very tall slender fellow um, excellent he, hugger he is an excellent hugger he is a real sweetheart um, <laughs> we had the opportunity to meet him a couple of times and um yeah he is a great hugger and, and just a, a real sweetheart but he uh, was one of Long John number two uh, in the movie. But, you know, he's been in Hellboy. He's been in Pan's Labyrinth. Um, he was in uh, Crimson Peak and many others. But those are the ones that we've seen. Look, you need a thin guy to be a monster. I got a guy for you. His name is <laughs> Doug Jones. He's the best in business. Yes. Um, I will plug just real quick, if you haven't ever seen it, uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, the remake that Doug Jones is in. Um must see. Mm -hmm. Must see. I love sampling. I, you know, I've been into industrial music for over half my life, and one of the hallmarks of industrial music is sampling stuff. And I've recently done a lot of academia on sampling. I have an essay coming out on Gladiator being sampled, for instance. Um, my, my first Frontline Assembly album I bought was the album Implode. And um, 
it's a great album. Um, and there's a lot of samples in it. And the ones that always stuck out for me is it sampled Event Horizon. Um, <laughs> it's a great song, too. Um, but there, there was these samples in the film that actually wound up sampling Mimic. And I didn't know that. Uh, I, it, the sample goes, Sinners for Disease Control, Redealing of an Epidemic. Uh, I actually thought it was just from the movie Outbreak that had Dustin Hoffman and didn't pay any attention to it. So, so you know, years and years and years later, you know, <laughs> we're watching Mimic and the title screen, you know, the credits are rolling by and it has that, that quote. And I'm like, I froze it. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, that's sampled in Frontline Assembly. That's sampled in Frontline Assembly. And Michelle's like, you are as bad. But I got, ex- I love it when I find a sample in a song that I find in a movie especially one that I thought was in a different movie. It turned out to be this one. And this song actually had been on my mind recently because of COVID and pandemic stuff and, you know, CDC and everything. There's actually been a lot of topical Frontline Assembly songs that have just been popping on my radar as of late. And so, of course, I go back and I look at my old Frontline Assembly album, Implode, that the song that the beginning of Mimic is sampling, um is in the song called Prophecy, which also has a single. And of course, the artwork for the single and the album is a guy that's getting fused with this giant bug. There's like beetle teeth coming out of him and bug wings and everything. And I'm like, holy smokes, this album is is basically, you know, Bill Lieb took (laughs) Event Horizon and cobbled it together with Mimic and made basically a concept album of both. And so... Nothing else to say there, really, other than, you know, this movie has, you know, influenced other, aside from seeing Gilmel del Toro's growth from it, influenced other musicians, in this case, Frontline Assembly, who thought it was necessary to sample the beginning dialogue and music cues into their song, which in turn has, you know, topical relevancy for pandemic and COVID and stuff, which is probably a good segue to talk about. science and covid and pandemics and whatnot that this film talks about mm-hmm. yeah i would agree yeah this this is a pre-9-11 film but it does it, it is a science film as well this is one of those science goes amuck stories and you know we're, we're in the pandemic now of covid19 and you know we have half the population here in the states that won't take a vaccine and of course we don't trust doctors we don't trust scientists we don't know what's in it and which is which is sad, but that's a political dialogue for another time. But you know, I, I as pop culture scholars, you know, we see you know movies, you know, being vessels for communicating ideas. And I'm sorry, since Frankenstein, there's been you know science's evil narratives out there. You know, uh, mimic closely comes to me for Jurassic Park, where they've cloned dinosaurs. They put in all these safety valves that the dinosaurs want to escape, and they're going to stay infertile females. And what happens? Uh, they escape and lay eggs. It's the same thing that happens in Mimic. We've breed this special cockroach that's going to die. Well, no, it gets, you know, loose in the world and multiplies. And it's like, oh no, we as humans, we shouldn't have meddled with something. Or, as the Jeff Goldblum quote goes, life. Uh, finds a way and you know so you have a, a lot of these you know bad science narratives now typically these movies have you know they try to correct itself by another scientist coming in and saving the day but it's usually for not because what's what's the last frame in these films of you know the one monster that still gets away to be continued now we have sequels and everything so these these films do kind of convey that greater sense of you can't trust science. And there's actually a scene in Mimic where they're on the train 
Uh, Officer Norton has been slashed by one of the mimics. He's he is bleeding. He's he's at a blood loss, and he's sitting there. But Mira Servino's character kind of recaps. Hey, you know, we saved the day three years ago by breeding these cockroaches, and it turns out we did an oops. <laughs> and of course, he he goes off on him. What do you do? You didn't know what you did. You bred these killer cockroaches. You are meddling with things you shouldn't be meddling with. And you know, I think that's the kind of attitude that a lot of folks adapt. Uh, that. His little scene there is kind of a, you know, a metaphor for people that, you know, don't take science seriously or are afraid of science or are afraid of progress because we see movie after movie where, you know, how many movies show us science not going awry? Yeah, there's not that many that I can think of where uh, science hasn't done more harm than good. Um, and, you know, of course, in this film the reason for these Judas breed of um, bugs is because uh, the children in New York, as well as I think other places, are dying because of the cockroaches. And so it is uh, an interesting commentary. Do something that you think is for the greater good, or do you try to test more? You know, um, the hypothesis was that you know, she'd be, they would breed out after one uh, generation and they would all die out and everything would be great. Then but if Murray Abraham comes along and says, no, this is the real world, Mira Savino. Yeah. Um, so it is. It's, um, th yeah, that, that part was also kind of stock um, and it would have been interesting to have the story a bit different that you know it isn't science hasn't done wrong i mean i also feel the sense that science is being told don't play god you know as well and we see that a lot uh as a trope in stories as well i mean it's a good trope and we get a lot of entertainment out of it but you know at the same time of you know we're, we're at this again in a society right now that's critical of you know, critical thought, critical of science, critical of knowledge, when you have decades, if not centuries, of pop culture saying, don't trust science. The only exception I could think of are comet movies. <laughs> For some odd reason, people trust scientists when a comet is coming to your planet. <laughs> they, they trust the folks in Armageddon so much that they're going to send oil drillers up there. <laughs> That's the only exception, but it is kind of sad, and I don't know how to write that because you know a lot of those films open up other questions and what i mean you know jurassic park you know it does have a lot of other things to say you know yeah don't play god but also you know uh, well i guess it does only have that but <laughs> you know things of commercialism and economics and family and also what science can do if you had you know done it properly but they're all turned into these you know Uga booga monster narratives and again i get it for entertainment but at the same time again centuries of this type of narrative i mean even lovecraft has science gone awry Ch mm -hmm. charles dexter ward is a scientist and he turns out to be evil mm -hmm. and doing bad things uh so I, I don't know what the answer to that is but but the uh, officer norton's character in the the subway uh, scene kind of just sums that up of you know WTF what are you doing we wouldn't be in this jam had you done this properly yeah on the flip side there is a um, Susan uh, Mara Savino's character is 
talking with uh, the F. Murray Abraham character, who is a professor and her mentor. And Amadeus, Amadeus. And he does tell her that while he, you know, would have said three years ago not to do it, he also understands that his grandchildren were still around because they had taken the step to go ahead and release the Judas uh, bugs to kill the cockroaches and end the pandemic. Well, one of the things that uh, we definitely picked up on through this film is the idea of um, fatherhood. And we see that in like about four or five different relationships in here. Uh, One being uh, Peter, uh, his fertility is kind of called into question because he and Susan are trying to have a baby. Um, It's not working Um, He's had ice packs down in his pants, you know, and he's trying to see if she'll, you know, take some sort of miracle vitamin. Um, The issue is him, not her. It should be pointed out. He makes a couple jabs at his own, you know, impotence of sorts. So the the issue is him. Yeah. So that's one one perspective uh, that is brought into question. Um, And just as an aside... Um, before all things go awry and they're in the 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 uh, the sewers and the subways and all that, uh, Susan is taking a, a baby test and finds out that she's pregnant. At well, first, it's it's negative. She leaves, um, and then for whatever reason, he's looking in the garbage and he sees, <laughs> oh, there's that little plus yeah. sign, and um, so he's all excited because he's been kind of vindicated. You know, he is not infertile. Um, They're going to have a baby. But it also affects his actions later in the film because, you know, now he knows that since she has his kid in him, you know, there's a self-sacrifice scene he's going to do that he Mm -hmm. probably wouldn't have done (laughs) otherwise. Uh, I don't know. I think he probably still would have done it. But um, definitely knowing that you have your your legacy, you know, baking in the oven... (laughs) It might, might help. Now, so to keep running with Jeremy Northam's character, mm-hmm. I, I, I thought, you know, this had, you know, reverse parallels to Aliens, where that's, you know, mother versus mother. You know, you've got Sigourney Weaver who wants to have a kid. Ripley, I should say. Ripley wants to have a kid. She has a daughter, but her daughter's died of old age because that's how space-time and cryosleep works. You know, then she gets Newt that she kind of adopts, but, you know, it comes down to a big epic battle between her and the queen alien, which can lay eggs. So it's, you know, it's the baddest mother versus the baddest mother. Well, here in Mimic, you have Jeremy Northam's character who's infertile, and his his nemesis is the one cockroach Mimic uh, they're all female. There's only one man, and he gets you know he he fertilizes all the other people. So there's there's some kind of parallel there though that here's here's if I could put it bluntly, his bugs performing better than he is. <laughs> but but you know he's kind of the the alien queen to his Ripley in, in a weird mm-hmm. sort of way. Yeah, definitely. That's a that's a very good reading to that. There's also the relationship between Manny and Chuli. Um, and to me, I felt that uh, Manny, uh, I think in the, the plot synopsis on Wikipedia, indicates that Manny is, is Chewie's guardian, mm-hmm. not necessarily his father. But in any case, he, he is the father role. Um, and we get to see 
uh, Manny, who is an immigrant, he's struggling. He shoe, you know, he's a shoe shiner in the subway. Um, he's trying to make ends meet. Um, he has, uh, like I said earlier, Julie is on the spectrum. So there are inherent issues with regards to the relationship that's not just social, um, but at a personal level too. Um, and having difficulties being a father, um, definite challenges there. But, you know, he he's, looks like he's trying to be a good guardian. He doesn't yell. He doesn't you know, scold or anything. He, he He's trying to find, you know, when when Chewie does go into the cordoned off church and gets abducted by bugs, you know, he's out to find him, you know, for all purposes. That's his kid and he's trying to get his kid back. So, you know, he's, he's being the best guardian he can be. And I think he's doing an okay job. Yes, um, but that's definitely another view <laughs> of fatherhood that we um, get in this film. <laughs> The third one I would say, um, and I know it might be a little stretch for some people, but I feel like Officer Leonard is also uh, a father figure, but at a societal level, um, because he is a, a, a recognized authority figure, and fathers are traditionally recognized as the authority uh, role in the family and dictates um, the decision-making, but I feel that in this film, you know, his challenge, and he he is portrayed as kind of lazy, he's a, a paper pusher, um, and he's not effective. So, okay, so that segues to my second point, is Officer Norton, Officer Leonard Norton. I don't know how to tackle this because... Racism and classism is not my forte, but I could tell when something arrived going on here. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm going to say this is because maybe it's a pre-9-11 film or not. I don't know. Um, but, but uh, you know, New York, you know, cultural stew pot, all that aside. There is a sequence. Uh, let me put it this way. Jeremy Northam's character does not like Officer uh, Leonard Norton. When when they first encounter each other, they're button heads. And, and to be uh, be honest, rightly so. Jeremy Norton, he's a director of the CDC. He has other cops that report to him. This is about, he's used to getting his way. And so when he wants to go investigate this locker room, and and this and, and Norton comes and says, you can't be in there, you know. And Jeremy Norton, you know, he's like, well, I'm going to go get permits. Dang it, I'm going to I'm going to permit you to next Tuesday. He uses some stronger language, and. And, but but to be honest, the officers in the right, you can't just go charge in there. It's, it's you trip on a puddle and crack your head. That's on his wall. I get it. I do. Um, but but he, Jeremy Northam's character, even though he's the hero, he's kind of uh, he's a dick uh, to to not to anyone else. Not to me. He shares a cigarette with Manny later, which is kind yes, of you know mm-hmm. an interesting scene. So. But he, he doesn't really get along quite well with Officer Norton. And I don't know if he's lazy, but he's definitely by the books. You know, that's his subway. That's his that's his ground. So he knows it inside and out. So I wouldn't say he's lazy per se, but I would say he's definitely super by the book. And Jeremy Northam is going to crush him under paperwork to get under there. Well, now they do. They get down there. And, you know, they, they get trapped down there. Josh Brolin runs off to die because he's Josh Brolin. Um, he, he's got to be in a, uh, a zombie film directed by Rodriguez later. Um, but, but, 
So they're exploring around, and Norton, I I don't know what the term is, but he is singing, I'm going to call it slave work songs, or African-American work songs. They're, 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 they're definitely, like, work songs. Um, and Norton tells him, shut up, basically. Can you knock it off? And uh, he says, man says, Jeremy Northam's character, do you need a memo every time you need to take a shit? And Norton gets pissed, and he says, hey, hey, be careful how you speak to other people. And, you know, then they, they do that shove away from each other. Um, and unfortunately, you know, that relationship isn't really ever repaired in the film. You know, the, 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 they begrudgingly work together. The officer sacrifices himself later. Um, but but I think it's, it's a weird moment because I don't think it's supposed to be a racist one. Especially, it's the line, be careful how you speak to other people. He's talk. He is definitely talking down to him. Norton, uh, Jeremy Northam is talking down to to the officer, and I don't know. It might be slightly racist, but it's definitely classist. In which uh, classist yes. is inherently racist. He thinks he's better than this officer. Um, and there was another comment, and unfortunately, I do not recall where it was, but I thought it was a conversation that Jerry Northam's character Peter. And Josh Brolin, his name was Josh in the film, they were having a conversation, and I'm pretty sure something came up, and they, Josh may have said something, well, that's, you know, hey, we're talking about class here, and something like that. So there's definitely some sort of other thing going on. Um, unfortunately, I, I do not recall that other scene but class does come up on multiple times yeah i think it's one of those themes that could definitely with i think spike lee does this in his movies especially his new york films like uh 25th hour um i i could see like some shades of 25th hour here between the officer and other people just not executed as well um but yeah it's a moment of classism that unfortunately uh, it's a blink and you miss it, and it's one of those, again, as film scholars, you go back and say, what's really going on here? And then you start kind of dissecting, like, again, they don't repair that relationship. They do work together, but it's more of survival rather than, you know, I'm going to say camaraderie. And at the end of the day, they both sacrifice themselves, or they think they sacrifice themselves. Officer Norton flat out sacrifices himself. You know, he leaves, he's bleeding, he's singing to attract the bugs. And Jeremy Northam does his self-sacrifice where he blows up the subway, but dives into the water and saves. Um, you know, he lives, the officer dies, and I don't know, there, there's some probably, again, other folks that could do a better reading in that than I can, but there's definitely a scene of classism, which in turn probably has a tinge of, uh, you know, uh, racism, but, you know, not knowing racism, like, oh, you know, I've got a black friend, I'm not racist, <laughs> you know, that type of thing. Yeah, uh, something that we didn't talk about, and it's something that I, I really should key into more, because, I mean, I, I it was something that I studied uh, for my master's thesis, which was the City Symphony films, where almost all the time private space was never shown in the films. However, if you look at Manny's apartment, because they, they have a scene there, uh, so we get to see how they live. Um, we get to see how the immigrant workers live mm. in the church, which is really pretty awful mm -hmm. um and then we for comparison we also get to see the uh private space of um 
Susan and Peter's home, which is definitely, it's also an apartment, but they obviously have more money. It's They have sunny. more affluence. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, I think that might be the only time when it's like at all sunny um, <laughs> is in that space. So there's definitely um, a subtlety about the classism and making a, a commentary statement about it that Del Toro is definitely making mm-hmm. um, in the film. It's something we'll have to revisit another time. I do want to end uh, and mention that Roger Ebert um, did an assessment of Mimic, uh, I think probably back when it came out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, quote, he says, Del Toro is a director with a genuine visual visual sense, yep. with a way of drawing us into a story mm-hmm. and evoking the mood with the very look and texture of his shots. Definitely first half. <laughs> he takes the standard ingredi- ingredients and presents them so effectively that Mimic... Makes the old seem new, fresh, and scary. And you know what? We, we cued in on that. You know, this mm-hmm. this could have just been your normal Sunday afternoon Roger Corman schlock flick given to any other B director, and it would have been fine. You would have had a good laugh. You would have seen Mimic 2 and 3, which are probably definitely that type of film. But yeah, you know, Del Toro definitely elevated this to, you know, it has its auteur elements, and it's definitely pretty to watch. And, and again, we like the film, folks. It's like anything else when you start peeling back the onion. Some things come up and an onion makes you cry sometimes. But <laughs> an onion is still delicious. And on that note, that that uh, smelly note, we're going to take a little musical break. And when we come back, we'll do thank yous and upcoming events. Welcome back. This episode's bumper is courtesy of S. Alessandro Martinez. Alessandro is the author of Helmet, which is his debut novel and available to read. Uh, we had the honor of interviewing Alessandro on our Scholars from the Edge of Time program back in January. Seems so long ago. <laughs> we wish Alessandro continued success. For upcoming uh, podcasts, on our next episode of HP Lovecast Presents Transmissions, we'll be spotlighting Farrah Rose Smith, Rahel Schmidt, and Kevin Wetmore Jr. in their writing, and all three of them had been past presenters at our Anne Radcliffe Academic Conference. This episode will publish this Thursday, September 30th. Coming up on our Scholars from the Edge of Time podcast, where we focus on sword and planet stuff, we'll be discussing the 2017 film Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets. That episode will broadcast live Thursday, October 28th at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and will be available to stream afterwards on Blog Talk Radio. And finally, October is coming up, and October is a special time of the year for horror fans. Woohoo! It's a month of spooky, <laughs> creepy, crawly things that go bump in the night. To mark the occasion this year, in October, our programming, we're going to focus on witches' stories. Uh, We're in the process of finalizing our reading list and interviews, so go ahead, subscribe, stay tuned, because you don't want to miss these episodes. And we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com, and of course you can email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We do have a few out there. 
We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books we have either edited or contributed to with individual essay chapters. Or if you feel like donating a dollar or two, we do like our coffee and soda here, we do have a coffee account. A link is provided in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening.